I believe the most important thing in life is family relationships. Because if you are solid in relationships and nobody matters more than your family because they're gonna be around regardless of whether you're successful in, in business and your professional life or you're not. Your family is all you have. So I, I believe family is important. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today is a lady that I actually met five years ago at a big event at my first Global Woman Club Summit in London, and she was a speaker and I was fascinated. We didn't speak at the time. I don't think we had any personal contact, but I was fascinated and I always thought that she has this air about her. She knows how to speak without even thinking before. It just comes out of her of her brain and and uh, really, really great professional speaker, award-winning, of course. And then I met her again um, in New York, the last time we met in New York, and we started speaking a little more. And um, I feel like we've become a little bit of friends. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Dr. Marie Cosgrove. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And Thank you for that warm and awesome introduction. Of and course, I only said half of what you are, but we're get we're getting there. We will talk about all the other stuff that you do. Sure, but you did say seems like it comes natural. Oh my goodness, I can tell you, Elizabeth, I never was comfortable doing public speaking, and ever, and like I never saw myself doing that. And then I got into sales, so you have to speak, right? I got very comfortable talking about what I do in the medical device area. But when it comes to personal, the very first time I spoke was in front of 5,000 people. My knees were shaking. Literally, I thought my little legs were going to fall off of me because I was so terrified, so nervous. But now I've done it so much that now I'm comfortable, but it took a long time. Well, this is a good point for those people who are listening to us who have not done any public speaking, but who would like to. So maybe this is, you can give them a few tips here, because as you say, nobody gets on stage as a professional. It gets better with time. And it's about practice. Practice makes perfect in every respect of life, doesn't it? Absolutely. Practice, experience, nothing beats experience. So I feel my big mistake is I was thrown out into the crowds early on and I didn't have the experience. So I invested in myself and in, in training, but I wish I would have done it reverse because now I'm thinking you do not want to go in front of 5,000. My first audience is 5,000 people. You don't want to go unprepared or without being properly trained because you can't go back and fix it. And yeah. so anyway, uh, the, the first time, I remember the second time, Nick Vujicic, good friend of mine, He's like, you're going to go out and speak. And I'm like, no, I, I don't do that. That's your job. Did you do that? And he's like, no, you're going to go out there. 15,000 people. And I was like terrified. And I just, you know, went and, and spoke. And then he says, I said, I'll do five minutes. He goes, no, you're going to do 30 minutes. And he didn't come back until the 30 minutes were done. So I said, you know, I keep getting asked to speak with all these big crowds, I better invest in myself. And I did, I, I invested in, I've had probably five speaking coaches. Yeah. 
It's important. I have invested in my public speaking and I I really believe it, it it's 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 like something that holds you up. It does help a lot and it gives you guidelines and and there are certain rules even though, you know, we we are supposed to sound natural or we do sound natural, but there are certain certain stuff that we have to consider. Oh yeah, absolutely. So like so many things to to consider like who who is the audience? Who are you speaking to? Can you adjust your your talk to that particular audience and read the energy in the room? Because you know I've seen speakers who will speak and the energy is low and they don't do anything to try to get the energy back up. So that's the speaker's responsibility. And a lot of times the speaker says that was a bad audience. No, it wasn't the audience. The responsibility is solely on the speaker on the audience's reaction because you decide where you're going to take that energy from the audience and where you're going to take them. So I've heard speakers say, oh, I spoke at the audience. They didn't react. It was a bad audience. No, not necessarily. (laughs) So it's your job to adjust your talk. I know that a lot, reading the room. Some some speakers do not read the room and, and you can feel the tension because it's like it's like they're talking in another language somehow, you know, the people are not. And of course, the other thing is to get people's attention. You know, the attention span of people is very short. So if you don't get their attention very quickly, they're going to start looking at their phones or they're going to start thinking about what they're going to cook for dinner or, or, or whatever else. They may pretend that they're listening, but they're not. Right, right. Yeah, so true. Let's talk about you. Where did it all begin? And I know that you have an an extremely interesting story. And that's what fascinated me when I listened to you the first time in London. You were announced as the lady who bought the company that sacked her. Yeah, um, it it actually, uh, yeah, I am. I, I did buy the company that fired me, but I think it started way before then, even probably before I was born. My, I don't know. Is it okay if I share? I'd like you to share. I didn't know where to start. So I'm I'm glad that you go back. In in 1969 on New Year's Day, my grandmother and my grandfather were traveling to Mexico. And they were in a severe car accident that resulted in just horrific brain injury for their for their daughter. And she was in a coma for over three months. And right when the doctor was about to like pull the plug, she opened her eyes. And one of the lessons I learned from that was never losing hope, never losing hope, never losing faith. And she, her daughter woke up, had to learn how to walk, talk, do everything all over again. But the tragedy didn't end there. She was raped. And out of that tragedy, I'm here. And so I've learned that life doesn't have to be perfect to be beautiful. I mean, sometimes we experience, you know, horrific situations and we have to keep that hope because when you keep that hope alive, you don't just, when you lose hope, you lose everything. You you can't see a future. You fall into depression. But if you continue to hope, even though you don't see how you can possibly get out of a certain situation, you're going to get ahead. You're going to get ahead. And that's one thing my grandmother did. She never lost hope. And if she had, I wouldn't be here speaking with you today. So 
thank God for that because um, it was very difficult being born to a mom who had permanent brain damage. She had serious mental um, health conditions. She was under a lot of medications. And so I've learned that sometimes out of adversity, we do experience the most beautiful miracles. So that's why it's important to keep that hope because I believe that the bigger the adversity, the the bigger the miracle that's about to show up in your life. And I really believe that because I've seen it in my life. And I remind myself that too, because we all face challenges. I mean, we live in a world where, you know, as much as we can control our thought process, we can maintain positive, we can be in a perfect state of mind, but people have free will. So we work, you know, in our environments, you know, you, you might be driving and there's a drunk driver and you don't know, they accidentally hit you. And you were thinking, this is not something you attracted to yourself. That was their free will, something they did. And you happen to be on the road, but Challenges happen to every single one of us. I don't care who you are. I have friends that are hugely successful, very well known, and they go through challenges. You know, we talk about it and we all go through them. That's why I think it's so important to always maintain that hope, that that hope and faith and just believe that, you know, you may not understand it right now, what you're going through, but things will get better. So that's where it all started with me. I have now five children. I raised four single-handedly domestic violence situation that lost parental rights. And they're, the four kids are all adults now living on their own. And then I have one child who I had at the age of 40, and he is going to turn 14 here pretty soon in the next couple of weeks. So and you have a teenager in the house. That's fun. Yes, I have a teenager in the house. And things are so different when they become switch. Um, But I have also four grandchildren. My oldest son has three children, two daughters and, and and a son. And my daughter has one. So I have four grandchildren. And I just think about how if my grandmother had lost hope, none of us would be here. She begged the doctors not to pull the plug on her. But it had been three months and they said, there's no sign of recovery. We're going to pull the plug. But my grandmother never lost hope. She never stopped praying. And right before, that's when my mom opened her eyes and she had to learn how to talk, walk, and do everything all over again. So that's, to me, one of the biggest adversities in my life before I even got here uh, that was overcome in why I'm here today. So the power of prayer. I definitely believe that, it, you know, you can move mountains. And never losing hope, as you said, the power of prayer, never losing hope. And also knowing, I think, that nothing in life is permanent. I think this is uh, one way to, especially if somebody is listening and who is going through a really, really bad time or hard time, it won't last. Like the good times don't last. But unfortunately, we tend to spoil our good times very often by worrying about what could happen. Exactly. Instead, you know, we should just be, you know, thankful um, for what we do have. And um, I know, Elizabeth, you practice this being thankful even during the adversity, because that way you maintain that sense of peace, that inner peace. My I remember when I had to leave, I was working for a Fortune 100 company as a marketing director, 
And I had to leave that job because of domestic violence. I lost everything. I started all over again. And I was just thankful that we weren't getting hurt anymore and that my kids were safe. So even though we didn't have a, a home of our own, we were sleeping on the living room floor of my aunt's house. I was grateful. We had a roof over our head. We weren't like on the street. You know, we had a roof over our head, even though we were on the floor. <laughs> so I we didn't have a car. You know, we didn't have anything. So being thankful, you all, I, I think if you have a, a heartbeat, you can be thankful for that, that you're alive today. Because if you are alive, then there's opportunity. So learn to look at the opportunity instead of the negativity that's going on around you. Mm, that was just my, going to be my next word, because I think in our world where we are born, and I'm calling it the first world in, in comparison to the third world, we have opportunities. It is entirely up to us if we want to recognize them, find them or not. Whereas there are people in this world, they don't really have any opportunities. And that's a different story. But in our case, I don't really have, I, we don't really have an excuse not to get things done. Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. So I agree with you. Talk a little bit. This is called Most Memorable Journeys, and I know that I met you in in uh, in England. You were you are you originally living in Ohio? I live in Ohio originally. Yes. Yeah. So I, I met you in London. I met you in New York. You travel, and I know that you go to other places. What is your favorite most memorable journey? Whoa, that's uh, that's a big question uh, because. I love so many places. I love water. I love the ocean. I guess the most memorable journey was swimming with the whale sharks with my son when he was nine in, in Cancun. And that was awesome because the whale, like we were right in front of it. We got to touch it and then it mouth open and we were like right in front and we we're like, Oh, I hope we don't get sucked in there. <laughs> but that was probably the most memorable. As of now, but there's there's been so many because we've traveled so many places. I mean, Spain, Luxembourg, Germany, Sweden, Bahamas. I've been I've been to so many places. It's yeah, all over every state in the United States, uh, Canada. So I've been to uh, Paraguay. I've been to Costa Rica. Just so many places and I think that was the most memorable just because it was like so you know it's pretty awesome to be in the in front of the mouth of a whale I I would I would consider that quite memorable but yeah. do you combine because I know that you travel a lot for work you go and speak do you get a little time to see places or do you usually do you often just go there and do your job and leave again many times I just go do my job and leave again I do try to take some time off. My favorite speaking engagements that I get hired for are the ones where it's a vacation because that gives us time to, okay, do my talk and then do the vacation with the VIP people. That That's my favorite. But um, for example, March, I'm booked back to back. I'm not going to have time to explore anything. It's just going to be go do my talk, fly out to the next one, do my talk, fly out to the next one, do my talk. So, oh, that is tough though. Do you get to go home in between or is it just going from one place to the other? No, it's going to be one place to the other and no time to go home within the US or are you going abroad? 
Within the U.S. Within the U.S. But still, I mean, the U.S. is it, it's it's a big place, you know. It's it's not like it's not like Cyprus where we have a, a one million people and we can drive from one end to the other in four hours. Have you ever been to Cyprus? I have never been to Cyprus. I think I asked Les Brown that the other day when I was doing a podcast with him. Thanks to you. And he said, no. And I think you and Les Brown should come to Cyprus and do a little talk. That would be wonderful. I just talked to him this morning. He's in San Antonio, Texas right now. He'll be back in Atlanta tomorrow. But we had a conversation this morning. That would be amazing. Can you imagine? <laughs> because we are surrounded by, I mean, Cyprus would not provide enough people to listen, but we are su- su- surrounded by countries that are, are, are less than an hour's flight away. And so, um, but this is a, this is a podcast episode and not a sales call. So let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to most memorable journeys. Okay. But also I want to pick your brain a little bit about, um, you are also a resilience expert. Would you mind explaining to the people who are listening to, to us what that is? I know what resilience is, but what, what does a resilience expert do? So I, I speak on the topic of resilience. And I believe that in order to be successful in life and to be able to move forward, when you have faced challenges, you have to have resilience. If you don't have resilience, you're just going to snap under pressure. And so I give the tools and we do workshops and exercises to teach people resilience tools on resiliency. So I work with government agencies. I work with corporations on teaching. How do you build these skills? For example, emotional intelligence is a big part of resilience, building resiliency, learning how to communicate with toxic people, learning how to deal with challenges, workplace challenges, and things of that nature. So I believe faith is one of them. That's that's a big component uh, of having resiliency. Another component is having that emotional intelligence. That is a key component as well to building resiliency. Another key component to building resiliency is adaptability, being able to adapt when you have, you know, changing times a lot. You know, COVID taught us that a lot. People that were not able to adapt, they just went by the wayside and it was very challenging and people that were able to adapt were, were able to move forward and continue their business or and their life in a different way and adjust to the new way of doing business. So those, those are just a few key points in adaptability. Being um, humble, being humble is another key point for resiliency, humility, because if you if you don't have humility, especially in the workplace, your relationships are going to unravel fairly quickly. And that's one thing that is really lacking in society as a whole is humility. Being able to admit when you're wrong, you know what, I made a mistake. You know, I'm sorry. You know, especially if you're a business owner, being able to say that because that is how I've maintained the loyalty of my employees. I've run an organization 14 years, still have when I bought the company that fired me, I still have the same, some of the same employees I had when I bought the company. And they're still with me 14 years later. One of one of the biggest components was humility and being able to admit that because employees know and they know the truth. So if you don't have that, it's very difficult to admit when you're wrong, to admit your mistakes. 
And that's not the only component of humility. I'm just giving you one example of what humility looks like. They know that. And that is one of the biggest problems that I hear companies share with me is how do we maintain employee loyalty? And it always starts with you. It doesn't start with what's their benefit package? How much money can I give them? How much time can I, I give them off? That None of those things matter if you don't have humility because that builds the relationship with you and your employees and your staff. Why do you think that is that people find it so difficult to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Because we are all human and we are often wrong, you know, and, and it's not, we, we don't do it on purpose. Sometimes it just happens or, or okay, some people do it on purpose, but why, what is, what is it in humans that, that makes them uh, wait so long until they can admit that they made a mistake? I believe it's pride. Um, they don't want people to see their frailties or their mistakes. They want to appear perfect. No one is perfect. No one is perfect. And someone, you know, I actually learned this. I will never forget this. When I was getting married, my neighbor said, you don't want to marry. Only person that told me you don't want to marry this person. Everybody was like pushing me because I really didn't want to get married. They're like, um, no, this person's perfect for you. Perfect. You know, buying me gifts, perfect with everybody, very charming, very sweet, sweetest person. And she said, if the person is too perfect, there's something seriously wrong and they're probably more dangerous. And she warned me, I was on my way to the wedding. I was in my wedding dress already. I was about to go to the venue and she's telling me this, don't do it. And I never forgot her words because it was hell on earth. It really was lost parental rights. And um, it, it was horrific. But to the outside world was perfect in every way. Would pay for all the meals. If we went out to dinner with another couple, pay the meal, even if we didn't have money. Would put it on the card, even if we couldn't afford it. Would even help. Um, people on the side of the road, oh, car broke down, let's stop, let's help. Like everything was so perfect, but then we'd go in the house and blow up. And it was, it was so bad. The judge was horrified for what he did to my children. It was, it was horrific. And there's nothing more painful than seeing your kids be abused, but that's, um, it's pride. You mm -hmm. know, they, mm -hmm. they want to appear perfect to the world and they can't admit their mistakes or that they did anything wrong. And so I believe it's pride that that's what. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, it really, as you say, there really is no perfect person. There's no perfect thing. There's nothing perfect in this world. Another thing that you mentioned when you were um, going through the items of uh, being a resilience expert, emotional intelligence is a big, big, big thing. And I actually started when my children were, were teenagers, when they were younger, I started a Facebook page called Emotional Intelligence for Children. And then I kind of neglected it. And sometimes I because so many people these days are talking about emotional intelligence, I'm thinking of reviving it. Because you have a son who is 14. And don't you feel that the school curriculum, and I am sure it's not much different in the US, it's the same like here, is completely outdated. Children are learning stuff that they will never, never, never need, never use. And they should I, be. I agree with you. Absolutely. I agree with you. My son's homeschooled because that allows him to travel with me. And I think you met him, didn't you, at the event? Yes, I did. Yes, 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 yeah. I did. 
Yeah, and, and it's crazy because he's growing so fast. I can't keep up. Like we won't be home for months, and it's like now he's wearing men's size clothing, and I'm growing those. And it's like I just threw out like I'm giving you sizes thirty by thirties because he went now grew even taller. So just in a couple of months, he's just growing and growing. It's wild, but um, yes, absolutely. Learning how, because it's your responsibility to be able to communicate with someone else and be able to understand and read their emotions, especially with a teenager and understanding also their specific style of communication. For example, some people are more outgoing. They're friendlier. You know, they're the people that make friends with just about anybody. And they're always bubbly. And then there's people that are very direct and they want results. And they might appear to sound a little harsh because they just want results. They want to get things done. And there's people that are just, they don't want to, they don't want to cause waves. They don't want to, you know, create ripples. They just want everything to be smooth and calm and everything to be okay. Even though they may disagree with something, they would never say they disagree. And that's the majority of the people. And then there's people that are very analytical and they want to see data. They want to see facts. They have to see all of this. So it's understanding also, how do all of these mesh? How can you communicate with each one according to how they communicate? What is their style of communication? That's also a very key point of emotional intelligence in addition to personality styles. So I use that with my son because my son happens to be that way. He, in, in the sense of attention, he likes the attention and he makes friends with everybody. And he's um, also very direct. He tells you what he's thinking. So he has those two combination personality traits. So I had to learn to, to communicate with him because since he's the type of person that likes to make a decision and doesn't want to be told what to do, it has helped me as a parent because instead of telling him, you need to be in bed by 10 o'clock, he doesn't like to be told what to do. That's his personality style. I say, you know, you can go to bed at any time you want, as long as it's by 10 o'clock, anytime you want. That works. Oh, it's 10 o'clock. I've got to be in bed because he thinks he's it's his choice. Oh, I can go to bed at nine or 10. It's my choice. So it's just learning these, you know, communication styles. I did not have that when my four children, adult children were little. I didn't have that training. I'm certified now in that in human behavior. And I I wish I did. Because my daughter was very much like that. My older son was not, whatever, no problem. He was like a model child. Didn't go through teenage angst. My daughter did. She went through that teenage angst. But now I understand. I was forcing her to do something that she didn't want to do instead of giving her options. So I do a lot of trainings with hospitals as well, teaching doctors how to get patient compliance. Because that's one of the biggest challenges is, Patients don't listen. They don't take their medications on time. They don't keep up with their doctor's appointments. And it's patient compliance is a huge problem in the U.S., maybe over there as well, but it is in the U.S. And so I train a lot of hospitals on emotional intelligence, how to communicate with patients, how to get improve um, patient compliance and things of that nature. And it's amazing how things just turn around. 
You when... see, I I think it's brilliant. I think it's also brilliant the way you make your son go to bed anytime, but by 10 o'clock. But another part of emotional intelligence is also understanding their own feeling, because I think today's world for a young person is very difficult, especially with all the social media exposure and seeing what other people do. And everybody only posts the great stuff. And, and uh, you know, you, you feel coming, we're coming back to being perfect. You know, they see that everybody else is perfect, but them. And um, I think handling a young person's own emotion is um, is hard. Oh, absolutely! That's a huge component is being self aware and how do you be how do you build that emotional intelligence? And that's one of the biggest components. I actually have one of the magazines that we publish. We actually have a worksheet on emotional intelligence. Like, where are you in your emo- emotional intelligence? And you know, how self aware are you? How do you respond to certain situations? So it's an evaluation of where you are and how you can improve. Because emotional intelligence is one of the thing that you're not necessarily born with. You can, I mean, you you may not have a high level of emotional intelligence, but it's something that can be changed. You can do something about it. You can change that, and you can actually improve emotional intelligence. In fact. Um, employers value emotional intelligence more than they value IQ. Yes. You have, yes. Yeah. 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 I know that. I mean, I, I, I've been seeing that I have a daughter who is now 27 and, uh, you know, I see when she applies for jobs because you are supposed to have certain diplomas or certain stuff anyway. So, so that doesn't differentiate you from others, but it's the emotional intelligence that really differentiates you. Yeah, because if you have emotional intelligence, you're going to be able to resolve, you know, you're going to be able to deal with conflicts very easily. So conflict resolution is going to be easy for you. Uh, Communication is going to be easy for you. Just overall, you're going to perform better if you have a high level of emotional intelligence. And it can be trained and it can be learned. Basically, a part, you know, only, only a small part of our being is driven by genetics. Everything else can be changed and learned. I think it's important to know because it's too easy to say, that's just how I am. We can change. We can change. Absolutely. We can change. We can absolutely, that is within our control. So you're absolutely right on on that. Yeah. You mentioned magazines before. Um, I know about Nexus, the Nexus magazine. I don't know about any other magazines. What other magazines are there? We've got the Nexus magazine and we've got the Moxie magazine. We have um, the Moxie Experience podcast and then um, we, it has not launched. And we have recorded everyone from like Nick Vujicic, Les Brown, you know, all these people. The reason it hasn't launched is because we're running it on Roku and Amazon as well. And it's a good thing it hasn't launched because we actually found out we interviewed some people that um, several, not too many people, like a few people that weren't honest about what they said they they were or their background wasn't completely honest. So I'm like, you know, it's a good thing. I've learned a lot through the process. So that's good. But um, it's actually uh, recorded in a studio. So we record in an actual studio and then we started doing some on location. So they're all live. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Um, what else do you do? Because we are already, I w- I'm looking at the clock. We are already coming to the end. But um, what else would you want to say to the world, to my world, to my most memorable journey audience? 
What is important in life? I believe the most important thing in life is family relationships. Because if you are solid in relationships and nobody matters more than your family because they're going to be around regardless of whether you're successful in in business in your professional life or you're not. Your family is all you have. So I, I believe family is important. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean blood <laughs> related. It could be, you know, a friend that is like family. And I have someone like that because I didn't have a dad, you know, and I just had my mom. And so I have someone like that. That's like my family, Dr. Martin. He is like a dad to me and his wife's like a mom to me. And they have supported me over, you know, the years when my kids were little Family is the most important thing. And, you know, enjoy the journey wherever you go, wherever you travel. Just enjoy that. Take that in. That's probably the most important thing. Very beautiful. But one last thing. Many people think if only they had more money, then everything would be easier. I totally disagree. What is your take on that, Marie? I disagree with you as well. For example, a lot of people think, if I had more money, I could be more generous. And using this as an example, if you're not generous now, you won't be generous when you have money. If you're not happy now, you won't be happy when you have money. If you're happy without money, you'll be happy with money. But if you're not happy, you money is not going to change anything in regards to your feelings or your content- contentment. Now, of course, money is important. We need money to buy food, to buy clothes, to, you know, if you have a business, you have to be successful. That's one of the things that I do is we have a mentorship program on teaching people, how do you read a profit and loss statement? How do you set up standard operating procedures? Because we want you to be successful in business, because if you're successful in business, you can transform communities. However, that is not what is going to bring you fulfillment. Inner fulfillment is not going to come from that. Inner fulfillment comes within you. And like I said, if you're not happy now, you're not going to be happy when you have money. I remember when I got F- I got fired, I got FDA clearance for another device, cardiovascular class two device. And it took a long time. It took several years and I got it done and we built it. It was hugely successful. That's when the company that fired me asked if I would be interested in investing, but I ended up buying the company instead. But I remember when I, when I realized we're bringing in, you know, $14 million, $15 million a year, I didn't feel any different. I didn't feel like spectacular or wonderful or any different at all. It's not going to change anything. I mean, it'll change what you can buy, but yeah, that's a beautiful, because uh, what I also liked very much what you said is, if you're not generous now, you won't be generous when you have money, because to be generous doesn't only mean money. And I think this is the perfect ending to this beautiful podcast episode that we just did. Thank you so much for being on Most Memorable Journeys, Dr. Marie Cosgrove. Thank you for having me on. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.